morning. Good morning here in the uh, sanctuary and also the West Hall and online. My name is Ian and I am your RUF International Campus Minister here at Northwestern University where we welcome students with biblical hospitality and explore the gospel with them. Love what we do on campus and it's a great privilege to, to be here with you this morning as we open God's word. We will be in the book of First Peter. We're going to continue our series there. Uh, we'll be in chapter 2. You can join me there in the worship guide or you can grab a pew Bible. It's on page uh, 1015. As you may recall in prior weeks, this book is a letter written, to, written from the Apostle Peter to a collection of churches in Asia Minor. Uh, which is modern Turkey. And these churches are comprised of mainly Gentile believers. And so Peter is writing to them to convince them on the one hand that they are indeed God's elect people, and on the other hand that they are living in, in an exile of sort. Having entered into the kingdom of God, they are no longer perfectly at home in this world the way things currently are. And so this tension of being elect and exiled permeates the entire letter of 1 Peter, and we're going to see it in action here in the verses we're about to read. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning you would encounter us in your word by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and open our ears to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we ask this. In his name, amen. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. It feels good to be chosen. You know this. We all know this. I can still remember those days that my classmates and I would go out onto the playground. We'd line up and the best basketball players among us would begin picking their team. And on this occasion, I remember thinking, oh, I want to be first. But I wasn't first. And then I thought, you know, second pick wouldn't be too bad. But then I wasn't second. Nor was I third. And then I thought, oh, to be picked last, that would be so embarrassing. But it's better than sitting on the sidelines. 
And so a few moments later, as I sat cross-legged and watched my classmates run up and down the court, I felt less than proud of myself. But I remember when things were different. On occasion, my best friend Patrick would be a captain. He was very good at basketball. And when he was a captain, he always picked me, and sometimes he even picked me first. You know, I never asked him why he picked me. Maybe he picked me because he had great insight into how good of a basketball player I was. Or maybe it was just because we were friends. I never asked. But man, it felt good to be chosen, to be picked, to be honored, to be valued. We love it. I love it. We all do. In some ways, we organize our lives in order to be picked. We curate our social media accounts and our resumes in order to appear attractive to others. We dress nice to try to cover over our deficiencies or what we think to be our deficiencies. We follow social rules in whatever environment we find ourselves in because we don't want to stick out. We don't want to be an outsider. We don't want to be embarrassed. And you know, for the most part, that is normal. But on occasion, we have to stick out. We can't go with the flow with, of things. This may happen when we refuse to gossip at work. Or maybe when we're out with our friends and we choose moderation instead of intoxication. Or maybe this happens when we refuse to celebrate conduct that the world thinks is perfectly fine, but God has not. Sometimes we have to break from the crowd. We have to stick out. We have to conduct ourselves differently. And when we do, this is often accompanied by shame. We do not like this. We do not like the shame of feeling like an outsider. But living as an elect exile often requires this very thing. You know, for Peter's original audience... They were experiencing this tension. They had been set on a new path when they were born again by the Holy Spirit. They had entered into a new community, the church. They had taken upon themselves a new Lord and a new vision for how life ought to be lived. And at times, that new Lord and new vision came into conflict with the empire in which they were living. This would have been difficult for these early church members. And it is a challenge for anyone who seeks to live as an elect exile in this age. And so maybe you're feeling this tension this morning. Maybe you are tired of being left out. Maybe you are afraid of being labeled. Or maybe you have been fitting perfectly in in this fallen world and have been going along in order to get along. And whatever the case is, the Lord has a word for us this morning. He has a word of encouragement and grace. He is here to help us fulfill our calling in this world as his chosen and precious people. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to consider this passage of Scripture under three headings. In order to live as an elect exile, you must first come to Christ as he is. Second, see yourself as you are. And third, embrace the purpose of the Lord. So let's consider this first point. Let's let's consider Christ. To live as an elect exile, you must come to Christ as he is. We see this in verse 4. Look with me there again. 
as you come to him, that's Christ, a living stone rejected by man but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you are, you yourselves like living stones are being built. Here Peter says that Christ on the one hand is rejected by men and on the other hand chosen and precious to God. You know, when Jesus entered into this world, he faced much rejection. From the very start, he and his family, they were on the run as King Herod tried to stomp out the Messiah. When Jesus entered his public ministry, he was slandered by many. When he spoke with authority and with signs and wonders, they said he worked by a demon. He worked for the devil. When he ate and drank with social outcast. He was called a drunk and a glutton. When he transgressed social divides, they called him a Samaritan. Jesus was rejected by Judas, one of the 12 closest friends, his 12 closest friends on earth. And most of all, Jesus was rejected by the whole world as representatives from the Gentile and Jewish authorities came together to strip him naked and crucify him on a wooden cross. You know, what was true then is, is true today. Jesus is rejected by men. Though politeness holds sway in many circles, his name is used as profanity. He is viewed as antiquated and outdated for modern life. Some would even say he's problematic because of his views on exclusivity and human sexuality. And mostly, people give him no thought at all. The world has looked at Jesus and said, you are unworthy, you are worthless. But if you remember... At the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan, the voice of God comes from heaven and, it, and he says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. To God, Jesus is chosen and precious. These words, chosen and precious, come from the prophet Isaiah which is quoted for us here in verse 6. Look with me there. It says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. This word precious shares the same Greek root as the word honor, which it comes in verse 7. It means valuable, honorable, important. God sees Jesus as choice and precious, and so he lays Christ down as a cornerstone upon which the structure will be built. In verses 6 and 8, what we have here is a picture of builders. There are builders who are walking around the work site and they're picking up stones and they are evaluating them. They're looking for a, a choice stone to put at the corner of their foundation to be sure that their building is constructed beautifully and successfully. And so the builder who is God comes to Christ. He picks up Christ the cornerstone and says, ah, this is my stone. This is a precious stone. This will be my cornerstone. And so he puts him in the foundation. The other builders, however, they come to Christ, they pick him up, and they view him as misshapen, ugly, useless. And so they cast him aside. 
Little do they know, however, that Jesus is the only cornerstone. Verse 7 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Their building will not stand. It's missing the cornerstone, the only cornerstone, the one that God himself has chosen and placed. You know, if they they cast him aside, he doesn't disappear. Verse 8 continues, he becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It is as if the builders, as they move around the work site, they can't help but stumble over Christ. It is as if, it is as if, if he is always there before them. One commentator says it this way. Christ is laid across the path of humanity into the future. And one cannot simply step over Jesus to go about their daily routine and pass him by. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Do you see what Peter is saying here? He's saying that Jesus is inevitably consequential. He's most consequential. He is the cornerstone of everything. Peter says, before you consider what others think of you, before you even consider what you think of yourself, consider what you think about Jesus. Peter divides humanity into two groups, Jesus Christ being the dividing line. He says you either come to Jesus as chosen and precious or you do not. And it matters. It truly matters. When viewed in the light of the coming judgment, it matters most. God will shake the foundations of this world and only that which is built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ will remain standing. Further, you can't just take Jesus and say, I'm not going to put you as my cornerstone. I'm going to put you in one of the walls of my life. No, Christ will not be relegated to the place of secondary importance. He will not be the little bit of religious icing that we put on top of the cake of life. No, he is the foundational layer. He upholds the rest. He will either be the cornerstone or the stone we stumble over as we seek to construct our life apart from him. Those are the only options. And so this morning, do you see Jesus as chosen and precious? Do you continually come to him by faith? Is your life being built upon him? The Spirit of God through the Scripture calls us to some self-reflection this morning. What does Christ mean to me? What does he mean for my family? What does he mean for my life at work, among my colleagues, and among my community? How does he fit into my week? Is Christ my highest priority? To live as an elect exile in this world, you must come to Christ as he is. He is chosen and precious. He is the cornerstone of everything. He is consequential. So second, let's consider you. In order to live a life As an elect exile, you must consider yourself. You must see yourself as you are. Now, 
The pronoun you appears all over our passage this morning. Look, verse 4, as you come to him. Verse 5, you yourselves. Verse 7, so honors for you. Verse 9, you are a chosen race. Verse 10, you are God's people. In each case, this little word you is actually in the second person plural. Now, in the south where I'm from, we have a second person plural, like the biblical Greek. It's this fantastic little word, y'all. I love this word. This is a fantastic word. And so when you read you this morning, what you really are reading is the word y'all. Because what is in view here is not us as individuals. No, it is us as a community of people, the church. Oftentimes when we think of honor, we think of value, we think of dignity, we think of those in very individualistic terms. You may talk about how pretty someone is or handsome someone is, how intelligent, athletic, successful someone is. But in the mind of the ancient biblical author, what mattered most was the view of the community. And so if your community was thought well of, you were thought well of, and you thought well of yourself. But the problem was, was when your community was not thought well of, you were caught up in that as well. And so for the early Christian community, there was something inevitably attractive about them. But they were also viewed as subversive and abnormal. They were viewed as prudes who repudiated public pleasures like the gladiatorial games. They were accused, accused of dividing households and ruining businesses like idol making. They were criticized for abandoning pagan religious rituals. And so they were seen as unpatriotic because in their empire those things were mixed. They were slandered as cannibals because of the Eucharist. The original audience of Peter seemed to have been under a barrage of insults aimed at, dis, aimed at de, demeaning, discrediting, and humiliating the church as social deviants and morally questionable. They were relegated to the sidelines and they had to watch the other players run up and down the court. The world around them looked at them and summarized their quality with one word, shame. Peter, however, entirely flips the script. He changes the metric of honor and shame. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, they stumble. They stumble like the man who has consumed way too much alcohol and has lost, doesn't know where he is anymore. You know, the former metric that they oper operated on was, what do others think of us? Now they ask, what does God think of us? And God has exceedingly honorable thoughts about his people by virtue of them being like living stones built upon the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. Peter shows us what God thinks of us by giving us a barrage of honorific titles. Look, at, look with me in verse 9. It says, we are a 
chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now all of these titles Peter uses come from the book of Exodus. These are the titles that were applied to the people of God after God redeemed them from Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt and he made them a special people among all the nations for himself using these very titles. And what Peter is saying here by applying these titles to the church, he is saying that we are now God's special people. A new exodus has happened. Jew and Gentile together have been redeemed, not from Egypt, but out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his marvelous light. God has called us out of this world to be a holy priesthood, to live in communion with him. He has made us into a chosen race, a royal, a new nation to be his treasured possession. But this was not always the case. Look with me in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Like the people of Israel before us who had forsaken their God, found themselves outside of fellowship with Him, we too were outside of fellowship with God and had to be brought in. And what Peter is saying is that this fellowship with God is, a spe- is the special privilege of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, why are we so special? You know, did God look down and say into the, into the mass of humanity and said, I want to dwell with this people because they just are so impressive. Did God think that we were somehow better than our neighbors? Verse 10 continues. Once you, were, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. No, God looked down and said, if I am going to dwell with these miserable people, and myself included, it is going to have to be by mercy. We needed God to deal with us not according to our intrinsic honor. We needed him to deal with us according to mercy. We needed a bestowed honor. You know, we have no pride in our reception of Christ. It is solely due to the mercy of God who irrevocably called us out of this world. And nor do those who reject Christ have pride either. The rejection of Jesus was foretold in the prophet Isaiah. In some, and in some inscrutable sense, Peter says it was destined to be so. In the end, Christ will be shown to be the only truly honorable one. There will be no grounds for pride before him. So why is Peter telling us all of this? What is he he telling us us this for? Well, he is saying to us, though you may experience shame in this world, in reality you have been bestowed with the heights of honor and privilege in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a call this morning. There is a call for us to reject the honor of this world, which is shame before God, and to embrace the honor of God, which is shame before this world. 
Peter is placing over our eyes new lenses so that we can see the world properly. So often we fall into believing that what others think of us is most important. We obsess about our reputation. We may even conceal our participation in the body of Christ. We feel the eyes of the world upon us and so we cower. Because deep down inside, we believe that they truly set the terms of honor and shame. But brothers and sisters, this is not true. The truth is that God sets the terms of honor and shame. And he has looked at his people with all of their flaws and many imperfections and has said, You are mine. You are my treasured possession. You are my people. You are honored by God. And so embrace the honor of God and reject the honor of the world, which comes by conforming yourself. Conforming yourself to unethical business practices at work. Conforming yourself by remaining silent about Jesus when the door of conversation is open. Conforming yourself by seeking honor, by cheating on that next exam. You do not need the praise and honor of peers. You have the praise and honor of someone greater. The church of Jesus Christ is chosen and precious to God. We must understand this. It is an inestimable privilege to be a part of her number. To live as an elect exile, you must come to Christ. You must see yourself as you are. Third and lastly, let's let's look at purpose. To live as an elect exile, you must embrace the purpose of the Lord. The church is chosen and precious to God for a particular purpose. Purpose. We're not just meant to sit and wait. God has a work to do in us and in this world. As we come to Christ, he builds us and grows us for a reason. You know, in this age of consumerism, it's very important that we understand the purpose for which this body of believers exists. The church does not merely exist to instill a moral ethic in your children or to pass on a cultural tradition It's not another social network from which we can mutually benefit. It is not here to serve some desired political or social outcome. It doesn't even primarily exist for humanitarian purposes in this world, though by God's grace and his will, it does so. Fundamentally, the church of Jesus Christ exists for two inseparable purposes, and we see both here in this text this morning. Look with me in verse 5. It says... You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church exists for worship. Before Christ came, there was a temple that functioned as the central place of worship for the people of God. The temple there in Jerusalem would have priests, and priests would offer bloody sacrifices of praise to God. But now that the Lord Jesus Christ has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, he has made us into, as living stones, a new temple. He has made us into the center of the worship of God. We are a spiritual house. We are a holy priesthood. 
We offer sacrifices, not bloody sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. We lift our hearts and voices in praise and worship to God. And we offer our entire lives as living sacrifices, as the Apostle Paul says. We live lives of worship. Instead of offering up our lives to the idols of prestige, power, and prosperity, we offer our lives to God through Jesus Christ by living in such a way among one another that we demonstrate that Jesus Christ is our greatest treasure. The church exists for worship. Second, the church exists for mission. Look with me at verse 9. It says, you are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. We proclaim the excellencies of God. You know, this word excellencies is also translated as mighty works. Our purpose is to proclaim the mighty works of God. You know, rumors circulated all around the ancient Near East about this God of Israel who through a great act of salvation and judgment redeemed his people from Israel, from Egypt. Each year at Passover this would be celebrated and proclaimed. This mighty work constituted the very identity and purpose of Israel. Our purpose, their purpose was to be a testimony of the mighty work of God in their redemption. You know, we as a church... Are, are, are recipients of a greater exodus, an even greater redemption, an even greater mighty work. We exist as a testimony of the mighty work of God who redeemed us by the precious blood of his Son and transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. This constitutes our very identity and mission as a church. Our purpose is to proclaim, to make known the mighty work of God. We do this each Lord's Day as we proclaim the good news in word and sacrament. We do this as we support our mission partners around the world as they seek to make the name of Christ known among, of all, among all peoples. And Peter this morning says, we do this in our individual lives as we live in this world, provocatively gracious lives, and are always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. I recently came across a story about a man named Greg Nichols. He was a missionary in India in 1967. He was there in a tuberculosis sanatorium and he was passing out pamphlets to the Gospel of John. But to be honest, not many people were interested in taking his pamphlets. And so during his time there, he actually contracted tuberculosis himself. And so he had to stay there several months as a, as a patient. And during the course of his illness, he remembers one night he woke up at like 2 a.m. with these severe coughing fits. And he was coughing terribly, but he looked across the room and he saw this emaciated old man. And he was looking at him and the old man was trying to get up but would fall back into his bed. And he began to whimper. Well, the next morning, there was a terrible stench that filled the ward. It was so terrible that everyone, all the other patients were very angry at this old man for not containing himself overnight. In fact, even the nurse who cleaned him up smacked him 
for making such a mess. The very next night, the same thing happened again. Greg awoke at around 2 a.m., coughing terribly with his sickness. And he looked across the room again, and he saw the old man. He saw him try to get up, and then he would fall back down. The old man began to cry softly. And so Greg, struggling with his sickness himself, rolled out of bed, walked over to the old man, and the old man cowered in fear as Greg approached. But Greg bent down, picked up the old man in both arms, and carried him to the bathroom down the hall and brought him back to his bed. And as Greg laid the old man down, uh, the old man kissed him on his cheek. Well, a few hours later at 4 a.m., Greg was awoken by another patient. He had a hot cup of tea. He gave him the tea and he sat down across from him, started making motions with his hands, saying that he would really like one of those pamphlets he'd been trying to pass out. In fact, all day people would come up to Greg asking for his pamphlets. You see, Greg understood his purpose here on earth, and he had proclaimed the excellencies of God that night. You know, in the eyes of that old man, Greg saw himself. Greg was helpless, and he was hopeless. And Jesus Christ, in his mercy, came down, picked him up in both arms. And so in turn, Greg picked up that old man. And because he did this, people in the sanatorium were able to see something excellent about the God that Greg served. You know, God has made us who we are as a church in order to show the world who he is. In an age of us versus them hostility, we are called to take on a new mindset. The mindset of us for them. We do this because our purpose on earth is to make the name of Jesus great among all people. To live out our identity as elect exiles, we must come to Christ as he is. We must see ourselves as we are, and we must embrace the purpose of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we exist by your mercy and your mercy alone. We were helpless, we were hopeless, and you poured out your riches of grace upon us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, but our love could never meet the love that you have displayed to us. And so, Father, we are filled with gratitude. We give you thanks for this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.